In the past, as we have preached our way through various books of the Bible, and as we have touched upon topics from the texts that we have been examining, topics that are touching on central truths in the Christian faith, then we've paused and we've looked at other texts and other messages to help us reinforce these realities, to reinforce these truths. God said to his people at one point in their history, he said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Colossians chapter one, it says we're to increase in the knowledge of God. You hear songs in popular contemporary Christian music that sometimes undermine the intellectual, undermine the pursuit of knowing God intellectually, of understanding who he is, of understanding sound doctrine. Perhaps you've talked to people from congregations and they say things like, oh, well, we don't preach doctrine here. Well, the fact of the matter, doctrine means teaching. They teach something. They're either teaching sound doctrine or false doctrine. They're either teaching doctrine thoroughly and well, or they're teaching it very poorly and shallowly. It's kind of like some people say, oh, well, I'm not a theologian. Well, what you mean is you don't have specialized training in theology, but the fact of the matter is everyone's a theologian. If you have any opinion about God whatsoever, theologian, theos, God, logos, knowledge, knowledge of God or the study of God, like biology, bio, life, logos, the study of life, right? Everybody has opinions about God. That means you're a theologian. You're either a good theologian or a poor theologian, a knowledgeable theologian, or a very unknowledgeable theologian. It's just facts. It's a reality. Well, do you want to know God? Do you want to know his word? Do you want to know what he has taught in his word about himself and about everything that pertains to this life? I pray that you do. And so, Brother Rick and I, we study and we prepare and we teach in order to help instruct, and we trust the Holy Spirit will apply those things to our hearts and that love will flow from our hearts to the Lord and our knowledge will not just be an empty, cold orthodoxy. We don't want that either, right? It's both and. It's both and. The Holy Spirit has to do the work in the heart. And so we preach and we inform from the Word the whole counsel of God. So today... What we're going to look at is a study of the intermediate state. We're going to seek to answer the question, what happens when we die in this life before the final judgment takes place, before the return of Christ comes? In the book of Revelation, we've seen many snapshots of the final judgment, the events that take place at the return of Christ. And we've seen from those snapshots that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, that there is going to be judgment upon those who do not place their faith in the Lord during this life. There is going to be the reward of the new heavens and the new earth for those who place their faith in Jesus and bear fruit, showing that they've had a change in their life, a change in their heart toward God. (coughs) We've seen some of these Grim, even grisly pictures in 
revelation, such as the, the picture of the wine press and Jesus Christ himself trampling underfoot people until they explode like grapes and their blood gushes forth until blood is up to the level of the horse's bridles. We've seen these pictures of the wrath of God. And if we haven't walked away from this saying, God is serious about sin, then we have seen nothing of God in these texts. The reality is we just read the Bible and we see God is serious about sin. Sin is not a little deal. It's not just a minor thing. You know, this morning we talked about the the issue of immigration and illegal immigration. Here's the reality. If God says somebody is not to come into a nation illegally and they do it, then they are under judgment from God for breaking God's law. It's not a minor issue. At the same time, if we are behaving cruelly and unkindly to people coming in and we are breaking God's law in that respect, that is not a minor issue. The reality, the reality is, folks, when we study the word of God, we, we, we as believers even sometimes tend to want to make sin no big deal. That way we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to focus on it in our lives. We don't have to drive it from us. But the reality is sin is massive and it's a major issue. At the same time, though, we need the hope and assurance we're forgiveness of sin. We're forgiven of our sins. Otherwise, if we're if we're struggling in our own lives to walk in righteousness toward God, we could lead to despair. We could despair. How could I? Uh, there, there's nothing I can do. I, I keep messing up. You know, and I go in and I talk to the guys in the jail and some of those guys have a keen consciousness of that they've messed up because here they are behind bars in these damp cells and they're trying to keep their families together and they're aware they might lose their kids and everything else because of their actions. And at least that point in time, they're thinking seriously about this and some of them contend towards despair. Have you been there in your life? I've been there in my life where I've, where I've struggled and I've wrestled with these things. So we, we need the both and. We need to understand all the counsel of God if we're going to wade through these waters well. So I want us to step back and ask the question for all of us here, where are you going to go when you die, when your heart stops beating, your brain waves, the synapses are no longer firing, you have no respiratory function, your body begins to decay and rot away. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? We know there's going to be a resurrection one day and your body will be raised and you will either be raised to life everlasting with Christ or you'll be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But I'm asking right now, where would you go now? If you're sitting in this pew right now and you have a massive heart attack and you die right here on the spot, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? The Theologians call this the intermediate state. It's the intermediate state because we're not yet to the place of being raised from the dead. Okay, God does not intend for us to live for all eternity as disembodied persons. Okay, we're going to be raised from the dead and live in bodies forever, whether we're lost or saved. So it's intermediate. It's an intermediate state leading to that time of the general resurrection. 
What happens when we die? Where do we go? The Old Testament has a word which we need to understand. Some of you on Wednesday evenings are going to get some review. You've been doing very well with this as we've studied through this in detail. The Old Testament has a Hebrew word, Sheol. Sheol has several different meanings depending on the context of the passage. Those meanings can be under these general headings. One, it could be the unseen, it can refer to the unseen realm of the dead. The unseen realm of the dead. Now you notice that's not very specific. It just is dead in general. It's not distinguishing between those who are damned and those who are saved. But it can refer to just the unseen realm of the dead. It can also refer to the grave, the actual physical place where bodies are buried. It can also refer specifically to the place of punishment for the wicked. So you see this is a very broad word and the context determines the meaning. And it can also refer to the place from where the righteous are saved. Saved from Sheol. So let's look at a few passages in regards to this Word And as we turn to some of these passages, we need to make a connection. When we get to the New Testament, there are Greek words which are used and sometimes are translated hell, for instance, in the New Testament, such as the word Hades. The word Hades has a connection to the word Sheol in the Old Testament. Some of you may know that there was a translation of the Old Testament scriptures that was made before Jesus walked the earth. It's called the Septuagint. And it was quoted by the apostles. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the Septuagint is quoted very frequently. And the quotations we have of the Old Testament are from that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scripture. In the Septuagint, they translated the word Sheol as Hades quite frequently. So there's a a linguistic connection between those two. So Hades in the New Testament can oftentimes refer to this unseen realm of the dead, for instance. Okay? But we start with this word, Sheol. It generally means the unseen realm of the dead. Look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 35, for instance. So this is after Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers and then they take his coat and they dip it in blood and they make it look like wild animals have killed Joseph. They bring it back to his father. And here's what his father says in verse 35. It says, all his sons and his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Sheol is also mentioned, this unseen realm of the dead, as a place where sinners would end up in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 30. And I'll read this for us. 
number 16, verse 30. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, there's our word Sheol, then you will know that these people have treated the Lord with contempt. Okay, so Sheol refers to the unseen realm of the dead. But it can also refer to the literal grave where bodies are buried, such as in Psalm 141 and verse 7. It says, Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, Sheol, as when one plows and breaks up the earth. So see there, it's referring to the actual physical grave that one is buried in. In Genesis 42, 38, Jacob says, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, the grave. So, again, it can refer to the general unseen realm of the dead, where both the wicked and the unwicked, or the wicked and the righteous go in the intermediate state. We're going to talk about in just a moment whether the unrighteous are in a place of torment or whether everybody's just kind of asleep waiting for the resurrection. We'll get to that in just a moment. We'll look to some New Testament passages for this. But it can refer to this unseen realm of the dead, and it can also refer to the physical grave, but then also it can refer to a place of punishment for the wicked. In the intermediate state, I do believe the Bible teaches that the wicked are being punished while they await being raised from the dead and cast into the lake of fire where they will be punished further. It's a place of spiritual death or separation from God. Psalm 55, verse 15. says, let death come upon them, let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their homes and in their hearts. The scriptures say that Sheol has an appetite that cannot be satisfied. From several different Proverbs, 27, 20, 30, 15, and 16, Sheol and destruction are never full, so the eyes of humanity are never satisfied. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four things never say it is enough. Sheol is one of those. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 5.14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and the one who is jubilant shall descend into it. So you see the context there of those who are unrighteous who are trusting in themselves entering into Sheol. Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.5 says, because he enlarges his desire as Sheol and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. So Sheol, again, the realm of the unseen dead in some context, the actual physical grave, the place where the unrighteous Go after death, but then it's also the place from which the righteous are saved. They're saved. Now, 
Does God promise that the righteous are all going to be zip, taken up to heaven without dying physically on this earth? No. There are only a couple instances in all of Scripture where that happened, right? You remember the names of the two guys? Enoch and Elijah were two men who didn't actually physically die on this earth but were taken up into heaven. All the rest of us, guess what? That's not going to happen. Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. So be ready for it. Let's talk about it. Our culture says you don't talk about death. You do everything you can to, to hide that grim reality that death is coming. Some cultures cannot escape this so easily as ours. But does God want us not to think of it? No, he wants us to think about it and be ready for it. As John Piper says, don't waste your death. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your heart disease. Don't waste whatever it is. Don't waste it. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. Place from which the righteous are saved. In Psalm 49, verse 15. Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Notice that. He will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Psalm 86, 13. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So... Again, as a hermeneutical principle, remember this. You can have one Hebrew word in the Old Testament that can be translated into many different English words. You can have one English word in the translation that can have many different Hebrew words behind it, depending on which verse you're looking at. And you don't want to... If you're reading some purported Bible scholar... And they take you to Strong's Concordance and they say, see, Strong's Concordance says this word means this. And there it is right there. Usually that's overly simplistic. Because remember, you've got to look at the context to know what the word means. You have to look at the context to know what the word means. We, we do that same thing day in and day out in the English language. We have many words in the English language that can mean multiple different things, and you have to look at the context in which it's contained in order to know what is being spoken of. If you use this illustration before, you, you'll see a parking lot, and it'll have a sign, and it'll say, no trucks. Does that mean don't drive your F-150 into the parking lot and park your F-150 in the parking lot? No, what's the context? It's big rigs. Tractor-trailer rigs. They, but, but we use the word truck all the time. I, you know, I've got a truck. You all have a truck. i got a truck. Um, we See, you've got to know the context of that. Same thing with the biblical words. You've got to look at the context. My brother and I were doing lawn care and working at uh, one of the apartment complexes in the area, mowing the lawn there. And... Went up to the, the little room with the laundromat and everything to use the restroom, and there was a sign posted on the door. 
And it said, stay as far away as possible from lawn care workers. <laughs> I expected to open the door and there'd be a little old lady doing her laundry and she jumps inside the dryer, you know. <laughs> the lawn care worker, I know. Stay away, stay away. What, what's the context, you know, what's the context? While they're working, you know, so you don't get hit by a rock thrown from the mower or something like that. It's not, oh, all these these crazy butler boys are on the lawn again. You know, watch out for them. They're going to come after you and and uh, flay you with a weed eater. Context, right? I just I thought they needed to rewrite the whole sign personally, but anyway. Context. We look at scripture. Context. Vody Bauckham says this: the first three rules of proper biblical interpretation are context, context, context. <laughs> How many people just pull a verse out? Some people pull, I feel so bad for them. They pull a verse out of scripture, they've never read the context, and it's their life verse, and they misinterpret it their whole lives. <laughs> those, are one of, those are those types of situations, you know, I'm like, i got to tell them what it means, but I don't really want to. <laughs> this is really going to burst their bubble. Their whole life verse, you know, is, is something like, you know, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Well, it may not apply in the way that they think it applies to them. All right? There's a context to that. See the one on the billboards all the time. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, you know, I'll heal their land. People don't know what the context is of that. They put it up on billboards. They say, United States of America, God's people pray and he's going to heal our land spiritually. The context is national Israel. The context is God bringing actual physical disasters on the land. And the context is if God's people in the old covenant context where he promised, if you worship me and follow me, you're going to be blessed with material blessings that God will heal the land of the physical plagues and the physical hardships if they pray. But we're taking that and saying, if God's people in the United States of America pray, then we're not going to have abortion in the land anymore and, you know, all these things. That's not the context. It's not the context. Context. Read the book. <laughs> we got to read the book. We don't just pull verses out. I've listened to entire sermons where guys quote a hundred scriptures. And I go and look them up and everyone's taken out of context and not a one proves their point. Okay? We looked at that again a little bit this morning with the whole immigration debate. People taking scriptures such as in Leviticus to love the stranger and they apply that to illegal immigrants. It doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. The word is ge'er in Hebrew and it was referring to the those who came into the into the country of Israel in particular or into other nations abiding by the laws of those nations and were resident sojourners in the nations doesn't apply to those who come in illegally and break the laws of the nation context context okay i'm off of that one and we'll move on to the next so this was sheol in the Old Testament. And then as we look to the New Testament regarding statements about the intermediate state, a key passage is Luke 16. Let's turn to this one and focus on this for a few minutes. Luke 16, starting with verse 19. 
And again, the question, where does someone go if they die before Christ returns? During the intermediate state between Christ or even any any part of this life and the final return of Christ and the general resurrection and the final judgment. This passage gives us some hard and fast guidelines about this. The rich man in Lazarus. Some have believed that this is a parable. I don't lean in that direction. One of the reasons I don't is that the rest of the parables of Jesus do not use proper names. They're just broad general illustrations. This uses the name Lazarus in particular. So I think this is speaking about a real man, real men. And regardless of whether it's a parable or not, since the parables taught principles and they taught um, actual details, although in illustrative form and as an illustration, even if this is a parable, there are things that we can look at from it and say these things are fact about the intermediate state, right? Does that make sense? I mean, Jesus was teaching something when he said, here's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And he told the parable of the good Samaritan, even though that Samaritan was not an actual person, that's not an actual account. It's an illustration. He was teaching something through that. And he was answering the question provided to him in his own unique way. Indirectly. I love the way Jesus indirectly would answer questions. He knew what the questions should be. Sometimes we don't even know what the right questions are, much less the answers. First thing is to find the right questions, then you'll find the right answers. Beginning with verse 19 of Luke 16, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Could there be any more different persons in their economic and social status? Notice the location of Lazarus at the very gate of the rich man. His condition so desperate. Fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. There were many in the Jewish world who had a wrong concept of retributive justice or punishment, and they believed that if you were righteous, you everything would go absolutely well for you in this life, health, wealth, and prosperity. If you were unrighteous, then you would have hardships and trials. So all you had to do is look at your life and see whether you were sick, look at your life and see whether you were materially prosperous, and that would determine whether you're in right standing with God. We have a whole group of preachers out there today promoting that same false theology that the scripture in passages such as this overturns. And they'll say things like, God wants you to be wealthy, and if you just have enough faith, you're going to have wealth. Or God wants you to be physically well, and if you just have enough faith, you're going to be physically well. Tell that to Lazarus. Notice where Lazarus goes compared to where the rich man goes. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. 
the rich man died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's the intermediate state. This is before the resurrection from the dead. One is in paradise. The other is in torment. Okay, I think this gives broad principles regarding where do people go when they die? What happens when you die? If you are under the condemnation of God, you will be in torment. If you are in favor with God, you're going to be in paradise. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, right? Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Notice the degree of his torment. It is such that just a wetted finger touching his tongue would be infinite relief in his eyes. He doesn't say, tell Lazarus to grab a, a hose and come douse some of these flames and or have him bring me a gallon of water to drink. or None of that. It's just touch the tip of my tongue with a wet finger. You see how serious the scripture portrays the condition of the lost. And notice, as I have pointed out in past sermons, is Lazarus... Or the rich man here, is he truly repentant of his own sins? I think the indication is that this man who through all of his life watched day in and day out, Lazarus be licked by the dogs at his gate and would not lift a finger to provide for him from all of his wealth and prosperity. And now while he's in torment, he is saying, send Lazarus to do my bidding and come and comfort me. Has he repented of the way he's treated Lazarus? No, he's still treating Lazarus like a slave, like a lackey, like a servant, like an underling, like someone beneath him. You see? The lost don't repent in hell. They don't they don't get to hell and say all the sins that I've ever committed, it's wrong. And and God, please forgive me. They continue to sin against God, and as they do so, they continuously receive the judgment due that sin. So some will say eternal conscious torment, as we've defended from the scriptures, is unjust. And I say, no, one, God is not unjust. Two, the damned will never repent. It's not that they go to a penitentiary. You hear that in that very word, the penitentiary? It's where you put the penitent, right? The idea of the prison system is you put them in there to reform them and so that they become penitent. Well, that's not what's going to happen in the intermediate state for those who are in torment, nor will that happen in the lake of fire for those who are cast in after they are raised from the dead. They're, they'll never repent. They'll never ultimately repent of their own personal sins 
I want to pause there for just a moment because this is so essential and I, I think it's so lacking in so many contexts. can't tell you how many Christian music concerts I've gone to or funerals that I've gone to and the gospel message is presented, but there's a key element that is usually lacking. And the key element that is usually lacking from that message is a personal call to repentance for one's personal sins. Sometimes there's a broad general mention of sin. But how often is there a direct call to people? You have sinned against almighty God. You have rebelled against a holy and righteous and merciful God. You have spat in God's face every time that you've disobeyed his commandments and you are justly deserving of the wrath and punishment of God. But God is so merciful. He sent his son so that you could believe and be saved. Confess your personal sins against God and turn to Christ. Oftentimes it's put in the perspective of, do you want your burdens taken away? God will take away your burdens. Are you sorrowful? God will give you peace and joy. Do you want to go to heaven? God will give you heaven. But the reality is, unless somebody comes to the place of saying, I am not good. I'm a sinner. And Jesus had to come and die on that cross and face death and face the wrath of God and face torment so that I could be saved From my sins, I put him on that cross. I have to confess those sins to God. I have to truly be sorry for those sins. Here's here's the reality, folks, as you think about this, and this is answering this question of, can you have assurance of of where you're going to go when you die? Okay? Is there anybody in here besides me who has sin in their past and you blush to think of the things that you've done? You're, you know, you think about what you've done and you say, yeah, I know I've messed up. I know I've sinned against God. Is there anybody besides me in here that's like that? Now, here is a key, key question to ask yourself. If you could go back, would you do it differently? Think about the worst thing that you've ever done in your life. And now answer me this. If you could go back, would you do it differently? That's what repentance looks like. If you say, oh, yes, I would do it differently. I would do it differently. I wish I had never done what I did. I wish I had never done what I did because, God, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against your son. Jesus went through hell so that I could be forgiven of that. I put him there. No, if I could go back, I would never do that. That's what repentance looks like. If you say, no, it wasn't that big a deal or, oh, praise God, I'm forgiven of it. So no big deal. I'm not even. Or. No, you know what? Really, in my heart, I'm glad I did it and I'd do it again if I have an opportunity. You have not repented. And you're in danger. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
But on the positive side, on the encouraging side, ask yourself this. If, if, if you deal with, if you've ever been, you know, I've been here. If you've ever been in a place where you're considering the issue of, am I really saved? And you're looking at your past and you're looking at your current life and you're like, man, I am all messed up. Am I really a child of God? Here's another question. Ask yourself this. Do you look any different than you did before you knew the Lord? Is, is there any difference? Can you see any change? Can you see any change in your desires? Can you see any change in your attitudes? Can you see any change in your actions? Or do you look exactly the same now after you've made a profession of faith before you did then? If you can look back and say, boy, yeah, I can see a difference. Then there's hope. (laughs) There's hope. Right? If you can look back and say, wow, boy, I'm ashamed of the things I did back there. There's hope. As long as you're putting it in the context of, God, I love you and I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Then you got some hope that when you're lying gasping for your last breath in this life, that the moment that that life stops here, you're going to enter into life there with the Lord. Abraham then said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. You see, you see this reversal here, that which is unexpected to the Jewish ears. They expected that the rich man, he's blessed by God, right? Sure, he's going to be in favor. But what's the reversal? That having stuff in this life doesn't get you into the next life. Jesus, as a matter of fact, said, beware of covetousness. A man's life does not consist in the things that he has. He who has the most toys wins. Jesus says, damn that. That is damnable heresy. The rich man in another parable had his barns and he stored up and hoarded all his wealth. And God said to him, you fool. Today, your soul is required of you. And he went into damnation. Tells us in the book of first John that he who has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? If your approach to this life is it's dog eat dog, hard scrabble, get to the top, no matter how many people you crush on your way up, you may get up in this life, but you're going down in the next because the love of God isn't in you. Jesus was radical. We're supposed to be radical. People are supposed to look at us And say, we look a whole lot different than the people out there. 
We look a whole lot different than people out there. We're to be characterized by radical love and giving and sacrifice because we know ultimately this life is a drop in the bucket. It's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. But what we do now is the test. And there's a final exam coming. And as we've looked at from multiple scriptures like Matthew chapter 25, we're not saved by what we do in this life in the sense of doing good deeds, keeping the law of God. We're not saved by keeping the law of God. You're not saved by saying, I'm not going to steal anymore. You're not saved by saying, I'm not going to have any more impure thoughts. You're not saved by saying and even trying to carry out. I'm not going to uh, cheat or steal or, or murder or hate people in my heart or any of those things. Those things don't save us. They don't make us right with God because we already have a death sentence in the divine court. We've already broken the law of God and we're already condemned. What does Jesus say in John chapter 3? Everybody knows John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But people don't know John three eighteen that says that if you do not believe in him, in me, Jesus is saying you are condemned already. And then in verse 36, it says the wrath of God is on those who don't believe. <laughs> so the reality is, We already have a death sentence unless we put our faith in Jesus and accept the payment that he made so that we could be made right with him. So we're not saved by what we do, but what we do is evidence of whether or not we're saved. It's not the root, it's the fruit. The works are not the root, they're the fruit. It's not the root, the grounds of our salvation, but it's the fruit, the evidence that we've been saved And that's why the scriptures say you'll be judged by what you do. You'll be judged by your works, your deeds. Why? Because that's evidence of whether or not you've really had a change of heart or of life. Does that mean we have to be perfect after we're saved? And if we're not perfect, we're going to be damned. No, it doesn't. Because we're still forgiven. And the Bible teaches, 1 John says, if we say that we have no sin, present tense, we're a liar. We got it all wrong, okay? But has there been a change? And again, what was that question I asked? If you look back in your life, can you say, my life has changed. There's something different now. And I can see it in concrete ways. Things that I used to love, things that I used to do without thinking twice about them. Now, now I'm upset if I, if I do those sinful things. Now I'm... I'm turning towards God and saying, God, forgive me. You see, that's a, that's a change of heart. That's a gift of God to be able to do that. Repentance is granted by God, the scriptures say. Well, this intermediate state. Son, remember in your lifetime, you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted and you are tormented. Again, you know, I've told people this before. It's a no-brainer, folks. What, what do you want? A little bit of comfort, a little bit of pleasure now? An everlasting, eternal, conscious torment in hell? Or 
self-discipline, sacrifice, giving up things, being willing to let things go, being willing to do the hard things now, and everlasting glory and paradise. If we're just putting it in those terms, it's like, who wouldn't? But then you put it in terms of it's all centered around Christ and whether you love Christ. And then, oh, that's there's the rub. The rub is that people don't love God. And because they don't love God, they're not going to take him up on this offer. Because there's not going to be anybody in heaven that doesn't love God. Heaven would be hell for people who hate God because heaven is all centered around God. You know, you look at the book of Revelation, it says there's no need for the sun there because the lamb is the light. Then notice this, between, or besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. What does this teach us about the intermediate state? You, you can't get out of the torment side of it and go to the paradise side of it. If you go to the paradise side of it, it's not that you're going to be a bad little boy there and they're going to kick you down into the torment side of it. Not going to happen. There is no purgatory. There is no remedial punishment for all people. And then everybody's going to end up in heaven after they go through hell for a little while. The intermediate state, what we do in this life actualizes our choices at the end of this life. There is no chance to change our destiny. The scriptures are clear. What does the rich man then do? Even though I propose he has not repented of his personal sin toward God, because that sin in the text is centered around his treatment of Lazarus. And you see, he has not repented of that. He still has some compassion, at least for those of his family. And in one sense, it's a self-centered compassion because it's only his family he's talking about. But he doesn't want them to come to that place. And so he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Again, who does he want to send? He's like, send Lazarus. Make him go. You know, you get this. I mean, this is it's crazy. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What's that referring to? They have the scriptures. This is shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. It says they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. You see how God has elevated his word? You know, there are all kinds of people out there that will say things like, well, if you want me to believe in God, then God's going to have to reveal himself to me with some kind of miracle. Well, first of all, God has given his word and what God is saying here, they have the word of God. If they're not willing to hear the word of God, there's no hope for them. That's what he's saying. But then notice this. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't hear the scriptures, 
Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You see that? And who rose from the dead? The very one proclaiming this, Jesus Christ. And what happened when he rose from the dead? Unless it was one of his sheep whom he was drawing to himself. They wanted to cover it up. They didn't believe it. They would not admit it. They would not bow. You see how God has elevated his word. He says, if you won't hear this, it doesn't matter if God does miracles for you. You're not going to believe and have faith and be saved. Greg Bonson was in a debate with Gordon Stein, a prominent atheist, and he asked Gordon Stein, well, what evidence, you know, would, would constitute for you, you know, the existence of the divine? divine? And Gordon Stein said, well, if this, if this podium here would elevate off the ground, then, you know, that would give me an idea. And Bonson said, no, no. He said, you wouldn't believe. You know, you'd think up some naturalistic explanation for it. You wouldn't believe The reality is this, that unless God does a work in the heart and people come to true faith in him. Then they'll believe the stupidest stuff that you can make up to try and get around God. You know, you know what? One of the prominent theories right now to try and get around the reality that God created this universe is it's the multiverse theory. It says there are all kinds of universes out there with parallel worlds. And there are other yous out there, doppelgangers. And these are big time scientists. It's science fiction. Where is there any evidence on the face of this globe that there are multiple universes and multiple yous out there? It's pure, 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 pure faith with no evidence behind it whatsoever. It's ridiculous. And the scriptures say, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. People believe the stupidest stuff in order to deny God and have to re- and in order to avoid repenting and bowing before God. But what does it come down to? God has to change the heart. So the intermediate state. Here's the reality and a comforting thing for us. If you're a believer, look at Second Corinthians, chapter five. So here's some of the, the principles that we've examined regarding this state. When people die, and, and I'm going to draw this principle from this text and from others, they're, they're conscious. Notice Lazarus, the rich man, they're conscious. It's not that you just fall asleep and then you wake up at the resurrection. There's a consciousness. Okay, It is a conscious state. It is a state of disembodiment. You're not in an actual resurrected body yet, but yet you still have form. Notice there was discussion about fingers and, you know, things of that sort. There's a form, but you're not in your final resurrected form yet because 1 Corinthians 13 and other passages make it clear that that is to come at the coming of Christ. But there is a consciousness. You cannot go from the place of torment to the place of paradise or vice versa. There's a gulf fixed. And for those who are righteous when you die, praise God, we go into the presence of the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
beginning with verse one. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Do you groan for that? Are you so content with this life right now that you're like, Lord, don't please don't come back yet. (laughs) I had to I had to repent of that before my wedding day. I was like, Lord, if you're going to come back, maybe you could wait until after tomorrow I get married. You know, (laughs) literally, I thought I was thinking that I was like, you know, what's going to (laughs) happen? I've been I've been engaged for like two and a half years now, and I'm super ready to get married. And Jesus, I just know you're going to come back like right before I say I do. (laughs) But the reality is, you know, if we think about it as believers, do we long for his coming? Do we do we say this world is not my home or do you feel so at home here, so content here that you don't want there? Well, that would be very concerning. <laughs> That'd be very concerning. The, the picture of the believer here is we're, we're groaning like, Lord, come, you know, I, I know that. You have work for me here and I'll stay here as long as you want me to. And I'll try and be content here and do what you want me to do when I'm here. But I know it's better to be there. And I'm ready to go there whenever you're ready to take me. If indeed having been clothed, we shall be not be found naked for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident yet. Yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What happens when we are absent from this body physically? When we die, we go to be present with the Lord. And Jesus is there in bodily form and will literally be present with him. Will that not be glorious? (laughs) I love that. I love that song. I can only imagine. Have have you ever just. What's it going to be like surrounded by your glory? What will my heart feel? Will I dance before you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees while I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine, right? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you long to see him face to face? That's so much at the heart of the question of where will you personally go? In the intermediate state, if Christ does not return, do you love Jesus? Do you long to see him? Have you thought about what it'll be like to be in his presence and to see him before you in his glorified body? There with the scars in his hands. Do you long to hear him say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant? 
I like what Brother Rick brought out in a sermon a while back talking about when Christ comes. It says, when, when, and this would apply, you know, if we die before he returns, but at the time when we see him, he pointed out, it's going to be familiar. For us who know him, well, it's going to be like, there you are. <laughs> right? There's Jesus. <laughs> it's not going to be like, oh, let's see, I'm in heaven and there are all these different people. Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? It's not going to be like that. <laughs> there you are. There you are. Oh, that will be glory. I trust that every one of you here that you love Jesus. <laughs> that when you go from this life, you can go with confidence because of what Christ has done. He satisfied the justice of God. His righteousness is perfect. If it's up to us and our righteousness, we're all damned. But Jesus did it. And we're called to love him and to live out that love by loving others as we love God. Father, thank you for the time we've had here. And we, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus. Oh, may we fall more deeply in love with him every day. And we pray, Father, that as we thought through this, this issue of this, the intermediate state and where we go, that we have learned well from this and that we have uh, you've applied it in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will inspire us by this teaching, even this day, to live more and more for your glory. I do pray that you'll bless the meal that we share together. I thank you for the times of fellowship we can have. And I pray that you'll be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.